Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you'll hear part one of the conversation with Jordi Getman from Bronx Community College. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. Today we have Jordi Getman, Professor Jordi Getman here. Uh, Jordi and I actually met in December 2008. Did you know that? I remember that. That's, that is true. A little over, little over, little over 12 years ago. I know. Uh, That's we, incredible. Much younger. Our voices were still not <laughs> sounding like adults, but you know. I think yours, yours just. Um, uh, you know, after all of the whiskey that you've been drinking, you know, that's, uh, that must be, you know, you, you get a character in your, in your it, voice now. Yes, but it is tequila. I want to correct you just oh, to make sure that we have the record that. straight on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let me, let me continue to tell people about you, Jordi. Jordi is a professor of history at Bronx Community College, part of the CUNY system, the City University of New York system, one of the actually largest urban, um, uh, public school systems, um, colleges in, in the United States. Um, Jordi is also a consortial professor of history in the CUNY Online Baccalaureate Program at the CUNY School of Professional Studies. Um, and I should have looked this up before. Um, we have a, uh, looked up the episode. Uh, we have an episode already by... Um, Another person uh, uh, at uh, CUNY SPS. Actually, it's it's awesome. Um, so we'll put we'll put a link on onto that in the in the in the show notes after. Um, and Jordi has had so many roles. I'm not going to have time to go through all of them, but probably the main thing is that you've been a coordinator of the ePortfolio program for a very long time now at uh, at Bronx. Uh, you were involved with honors program. Yeah, I, I created it before before I created the ePortfolio program in two thousand eight two thousand nine. After I met you, um, before that, I created an honors program at BCC because I that's right. When I arrived there, I I, I, I thought it was insulting that we didn't have um, a program that that uh, allowed our our great students and there's tons of them at, at BCC to uh, to aspire to to higher a- academic achievement. So yeah, and it's still running, which is good. I, you know, yeah. It's amazing, and most recently, you also took on a a huge effort into doing the middle states accreditation, and uh, it was a super successful uh, accreditation. I think that was in two thousand seventeen or eighteen. That's when we started, but it, yeah, it ended in two thousand nineteen. And uh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and interestingly enough, we were we received a commendation for our assessment practices, which I was quite surprised by, but it was, it was a, it was nice to receive that commendation from middle states. It's hard to get that. I, I, yeah, it's, it is. And uh, congratulations on that. And then one more big congratulations on the, the, the new thing that's coming up. You are the inaugural director of online learning at BCC. That's true. Yeah, we we've uh, we've just uh, applied for and have been approved for um, the development of online degree programs, uh, and so we're going to start with uh, liberal arts, 
and sciences, and then uh, we'll move on to other departments and other programs. Uh, the objective is, you know, to take lessons learned from COVID and the forced uh, movement online of a large portion of our faculty and our student population. And, uh, you know, we've, we've found that there's, there's a, a relatively large percentage of our students who um, have shown interest now that they're, have been exposed to online learning, um, have shown interest in the, what, the possibilities that it brings of, of being able to um, get a degree online because their lives are, are very complicated and, and they have a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, you know, there's not much time in their days. So, yeah. uh, being able to avoid, uh, some of the transit times that would require, be required of going on campus. Um, but beyond that, I think, I think what's really interesting and I, you know, I hope we'll talk about this a little bit is, um, I was just looking at the, some of the surveys we did last, last semester, um, the, the, the pedagogical elements that a lot of our faculty have developed um, in, their, in these new online courses that they've been forced to teach um, have been quite interesting. And a lot of the students have, you know, we, we do have students who, who didn't find uh, that um, to be very positive at all. But, but there's, a, I'd say about 20 to, depending on where you look, about close to 30% of our students who, who really look now at online learning as something viable and, uh, and positive and pedagogically sound. And that's, that's a, you know, it says a lot about our faculty, um, but it also says about uh, our students' adaptability. And I think it's, it's natural. It's something that we haven't really been talking about much um, in the world of education. Um, our students have been online for a long time, so you know we're we're late. We're the ones that are late to the game. So I, I think it's interesting um, to delve into it headfirst and and try to to make something positive out of it for our students. Yeah, I mean that's. I think it's uh, great. It's so great that you're taking on this position because for me, probably one of the. One of the things that I, I have enjoyed most about uh, being a colleague of yours and, you know, a friend mm-hmm. um, is it's your dedication to just student learning. I mean, there's there isn't you know, there are you know, I feel like a lot of professors have to worry a lot about, I don't know, everything from tenure and promotion to to the politics to to um ego uh but you tend to just throw all that away yours is all just you know 100 percent about certain learning and um and uh and innovation really sort of trying to trying to get some continuous improvement out of it you know i mean it's funny because to say that i've been able to avoid all that is it's just not it's not true there's you know politics and the all the bureaucratic uh uh obstacles that that stand in the way of of getting you know innovative ideas through pushed through especially you know i I mean i don't know i've never i've never worked for a private institution um at at least education wise um so i i wouldn't know how that would work out there but certainly with uh public educational institutions it's it's very difficult to get new innovative ideas pushed through and, and accepted as as something that could become part of not just a little experiment on the side, but actually become institutionalized and an, and, and a, and an integral element of how the, how education and student support is, is developed. Um, 
and and at that level, I have to say, I'm, I'm, you know, there's a natural element of of mine that always looks for something, um, you know, something better. It doesn't matter what I'm looking at. I'm always looking like, how can we improve the process, um, just in general in life. But but when I when I got to BCC back in 2003, you know, Bronx Community College had um, way too many people. I mean, Faculty are incredibly dedicated to the students, but there were way too many people in administration and in, even in the faculty who, who were somewhat condescending towards the students and, and not really, um, you know, there are a lot of stereotypes that were established on, on their academic ability, uh, how well prepared or not prepared they were. I mean, obviously our students, most of them come from, um, you know, uh, economically difficult situations. They, they don't have uh, family or friends who have attended college. They don't really have that sort of point of reference of what it's like to be a college student or, or what it's required of you. Um, so it's, it's difficult to teach in a sense because you're, you're trying to like bring them on board to an experience that they don't really have a reference for. Um, but I've, I personally found that there is, there were many like, mental and cultural obstacles to to looking at our students for who they are and not who we think they are and so to me that's that's always been part of who i am as a person i I don't look at someone and and stereotype them i mean maybe it's because i'm an immigrant to this country and you know english is not my first language uh i you know i'm always very careful to to try to listen before i speak and at that level it's really important to listen to our students and the moment that you know, I have to, I have to admit the first few years I thought I was doing, you know, I thought I was a good teacher. I thought, I thought that I was actually reaching my students by being a good lecturer and telling a good story, you know, good historians tell good stories. And I was developing the narrative for them and I was, in, in, you know, including them into that narrative. But, um, it was the moment, uh, you know, about three years in that I, I kind of stopped and started listening to my students more actively that I realized that maybe I wasn't as good a, a teacher as I thought I was um, because I wasn't really including them. Maybe I was even being somewhat condescending by thinking that I knew where they were coming from. And so at that level, you know, it's interesting because I, as a historian, one, one of the things that we really in the discipline that we really uh, stress is the notion of context. You mm-hmm. can't just look at, you know, a piece of text and uh, written 200 years ago and and just evalu- evaluate it in, the, you know, in the present. You have to think about the context of where, of the of the event uh, that it came out of or or the time um, in which it was written. Um, you can't really look at opinions from 200 years ago and, and think that you know exactly. W- where they were coming from. And so if you, if you apply that, I started thinking, if I apply that to my students' background and, and their point of view, um, then I can, I can use context in a very positive way, not just in an academic uh, research yeah. context, but, but in a pedagogical context. And it was, it was a huge step forward for me. Um, it really changed how I've taught ever since. I've, I've never looked back um, I can't even imagine going back to a, a moment where I just spoke at my students, which is what I was doing, you know, really well, I guess, you know, they could replicate every detail of my uh, lectures and final exams, 
Yeah. Uh, and I, I felt good about that for a while, but then I, I realized it was, it was just about me, not about them. So once you change that mindset, I think, yeah. you know, and Bronx Community College allows that to happen because we are in need to help students succeed. It's a very, very difficult, um, it's a very difficult mission for all of us, yeah. for, for the faculty, for administrators, and for the students. You know, Jordi, um, that just reminded me that, um, and by the way, thanks for, thanks for sharing that, because I think it's that, you said that, you know, you're, you know, you also have to deal with the bureaucracy and all that. And I, I, I think you're right. But it's, I think it's the courage that you are willing to face it and not get beaten down by it. You're continuing to, you know, just um, innovate regardless. And one of the things that I remember I was so moved by is you gave this presentation. It must have been at AAC and you. Um, and I think you and Kate Koken, um Professor Kate Koken. I hope to get her to be on this show at some point too, because she's amazing. You should. She's amazing. Um, uh, I I think that is. I think the two of you gave this presentation, and you were starting to experiment with the idea of having students having discourses over an historical text, mm. um, yeah. and uh, and as a way to start to sort of learn from each other and. And uh, you know, start to sort of have their own background, like you said, comes out because in their conversations, you want to talk about that because you you're gonna have a much better yeah. way to explain it. And I think that 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 speaks a little bit to the kind of in innovative approach that you have for the students. Yeah, I think you know it's it's interesting because um, I would I would argue you know there's always been. There, there always is a sort of separation between the personal domain, like who we are as people, students, let's say, who they are, and the academic domain. So, like, um, when students come onto campus, they they become they, – they walk into a different world in their mind and physically and mentally – um, and, and that's always been – I mean, I, th I would argue that that's always the case, but in, in the case of BCC – that the boundary between the the personal and the academic is is much more marked because they don't have an academic reference. A lot of them don't, um, and so there's a lot of difficulty getting them to cross over. Um, and when they do, a lot of them are actually afraid of in, of bringing with them their personal domain, who they are as a person. So there's there's so much that they have experienced in life and yet, and it's, and it's, and it's taught them a lot about how to behave with others, how, where they fit in society. Um, there's, there's definitely, and I would even argue an intellectual dimension to it that they don't recognize sometimes they have, but they're, they're incredibly smart. Um, and so rather than, uh, you know, sort of try to directly connect that, like, transfer that over to the academic realm, I, I started realizing some, some years ago that it, it, there's a, a great empowering element to bringing the personal into the academic. And so what you're talking about, this is something that I, uh, once, once education, which we've used since, uh, since I met you in 2008, and I had looked at other, <laughs> it's funny, because, you know, I, I, I don't want this to sound like a, a commercial in any way, but I, you know, the moment I met 
uh, you, Jeff, I, I saw that same desire to not just be complacent and to, and to like always move forward. And so that was, that was really important to us to decide to use Digication as a platform because we wanted something that was always on the edge of, of creativity. It was always pushing the boundaries. And so the moment that Digication made it possible for um, users to comment on specific lines of text, it, it just immediately, I thought, as a historian, rather than sitting in a classroom with a piece of paper in front of you and like everybody reading at the same time and then people raising their hand and making comments about what they were reading, this, these historical texts, uh, primary sources, why not have the students engage in that text analysis before they came to class so that rather than guide them through textual analysis in the classroom, do that the first couple of times, but then after that, just let them loose and have them engage in textual analysis on their own at home, but on the same e-portfolio page. So it's asynchronous, but at the same time, all students are commenting and engaging with each other on the same page. And I'm not part of that. I'm, I mean, I'm not the instigator. Uh, I mean, I've provided them a text. I've provided them the context. And then they engage in analyzing the significance of certain parts of the text. So that rather than guide them towards a specific phrase and say, this is the important one that you have to pay attention to, which is much more traditional, I would argue. I mean, that's how I was raised and how I went through college and even grad school. Um, it's been fascinating to allow them to like dig and find relevancy in the text. And it, and it, it, it really helps, and you know, just to backtrack for a second, in developing their notion of context. So initially, you know, the first couple of weeks, they, they feel uncomfortable. They don't know how to analyze these texts, but but by the third week or the fourth week, we, you know, we do it throughout the semester. It's 14 weeks of textual analysis. By the time they get to the end of it, um, their ability to really point to and understand context, um, intentionality, uh, intended audience, all of this really is a well-developed skill. And what's fascinating to me is that I'm basically giving, giving away the the secrets that you have to traditionally wait till grad school to learn. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this is what, you know, the epistemological elements or sort of yeah. structure of history as a discipline, but they're engaging in it as, as freshmen, first year students, second year students in college in a way that, um, you know, when I was that age, all I got was the storyline, the narrative. Right. I had to wait to do the, the, the analysis so, but, but to, you know, to be honest with you, that's all online now. Like the, the narrative is online. You can just, I have videos. They can listen to my video or watch my video and 15 minute video, give them the context. And then they, and then they go in and they analyze. And you know what they, in this day and age, information literacy, the ability to understand what is and what is not a good source and what the intended meaning of that source is, is critical. I mean, the, the political uh, cultural reality that we live today, not just in this country, but around the world is, is, is needs that. So you covered so much there. And I want to go back to you talking about um, this idea of these first or second year or equivalent to first or second year students are doing 
um, much higher level work almost after these 14 weeks. And I just love that because, you know, all it took is for a professor to not underestimate the, the intellectual capacity of these students. And these students, um, from what I have learned over the years, you know, otherwise sometimes they would feel like they're the underdogs. They felt like that they, you know, um, they are, um, you know, they got dealt a bad hand and, you know, this is, it's a difficult time for them. And, but I think this is where I think education becomes so incredible. And speaking of that kind of, um, you know, the ability for you to link them to the academic and maybe to a certain extent, we can talk about things like um, literacy skills and analytical skills, critical thinking skills and pe- ability to ask questions. But I also think that there is a huge amount of just confidence building and believing in yourself that actually as academics, we don't talk about, like that's, that's not really in anyone's learning outcomes. I, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's, it's tremendously, um, I mean, it's, you know, I was mentioning when, when I, I had that moment of realization when I, when I, when I, I just saw that what I was doing as a teacher was not serving my students. I was, I was serving my own ego as a, as a professor. And so the moment I switched over and started really concentrating on what it was that they, what I could do to reach them, uh, on, on their terms, you know, and, you know, a lot of people, I get criticized, uh, by some of my own colleagues in my own department about not, um, you know, not being, by, about about lower, lowering my standards, the, the the fact that I don't actually engage my students in like all the content that needs to be covered in, in the class, and the reality is that for me this is much more this is much more complicated to, to actually develop help to develop metacognitive uh, analytical skills in in my students is so much more relevant than having them be able to recite content you know like the narrative, the historical narrative. So at that level, you know, I, I long uh, stopped caring about what they think. I think my students, what they think is much more relevant. And to have them be able to feel, you, you, you said a key word, confident. Um, in, a, in an academic structure that has traditionally been so uh, hierarchical and, and where, you know, I as a professor... I'm going to be, you know, traditionally would be the the, the gatekeeper of knowledge. Um, that's, you know, I'm sure that makes a lot of people feel good to have that degree of, of recognition, but it doesn't really help the students because it puts them in this long line, this long waiting line that they have to go through to get to a point of feeling like they actually know something. Um, there's, there are way too many obstacles and, and our students at, at Bronx Community College don't have that time, you know, that coming to, to, to BCC for many of them is the last train of hope. Like I, you know, they, they want to make a better life for themselves. And most of them come in thinking that they, they need a better job. And that's why they're there. They'll tell you that I, I need a better paying job. 
but that's not what I, you know, I'm not there to give them a degree that'll give them a few more thousand a year. Uh, it's much more powerful to have them become confident in their academic knowledge, um, th- their ability to engage their peers, to become leaders. All of that is, is integral to what we do a lot of a lot of the faculty at BCC do, which is to actually turn to the student and build that confidence. Um, and with you know, once you do that, it's it's interesting because I've I, I've taught uh, history classes. I've also taught the first year seminar that we developed a few years ago uh, with this very notion of confidence building in mind. And it's fascinating to see students who also, just like I as a teacher, had that moment where I clicked. And said, "Oh wow, I've been doing this all wrong." The moment they overcome the notion that they're inferior, because society has made them feel inferior for a long time, um, the moment they gain that confidence, it's it's wonderful to see where they go. I mean, I saw that with the honors program. Um, you know, Columbia University and NYU every year were calling me asking for more students to transfer uh, with you know full scholarships because the level of, of intellectual engagement that our students, once they gain that confidence, we're able to offer is well beyond anything, uh, you know, stale, like you would find in a lot of uh, privileged schools. So, yeah, I, I, I think that for us, and, and you know what, it's a mindset that is required of faculty to be able to do that well. You can't just say, oh, here's the formula and I'm going to, you know, engage my students and you know, student-centered learning. You, it really does require sitting down and rethinking very seriously how you teach. And it takes a while. It takes years to really feel like you're actually getting it right. So it's it's not something that's automatic. It's not something that's that's quick and easy. Um, and that's actually something that we've been engaging our, our faculty in is, uh, you know, they've had to switch over to online teaching because of COVID. And a lot of them are frustrated with, with what uh, you know, the obstacles that they're finding and trying to transfer, they're trying to transfer who they were as teachers to this new um, modality, and it's it's a whole different world. So I'm actually trying to use uh, COVID as, in a sense, as a leverage point to have faculty reevaluate not just going from face to face to online, but rather to go from a more traditional manner of instruction to one in which you really immerse yourself in engaging the students um, at the level we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been, this is, this is fascinating as you, to hear you talk about this sort of confidence building and it's, it's about creating opportunities and, you know, Biden is now saying possibilities, you know, for them um, in, um, in ways a lot, a lot beyond getting that degree or even getting the grades, you know, for that semester. And I think that sometimes, you know, you know, students when we are you are you know on a day to day teaching class or taking a class, um, that's what all that mattered, and it's not it's not true. And I I've been in fact looking recently at um, uh, this uh, idea of a have you heard of this thing called a global social mobility index and it's a yes yeah it's kind of like this almost like a measuring the upward mobility you know sort of probability for for people and 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 it certainly take into account 
you know, some especially when it takes into account um, the the different school districts that you attended, the different zip codes where you live. It United States so far, you know, we've done a really poor job. Uh, just as a reference, I just looked it up, and now this is this is Wikipedia level, you know, information. So please don't quote me on this, but just to get an, a sense. The top five countries are all Nordic countries. They are scoring at about eighty-five ish, mm-hmm. eighty something, eighty-five. You know, number one in Denmark, mm-hmm. and number two in Norway, eighty-three out of a hundred. United States comes at ranking at twenty-seven at seventy. Um, it really speaks to the, you know, there is a big gap really between that. It and when I talk, look at that, and by the way, this is. On average, this is like we're taking, we're not, if we take the, you know, if we were able to uh, look specifically at areas where, you know, for example, at Bronx, I bet you the percentage is way lower. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a big problem that we need to address, you know, in education. Um, Yeah. And, you know, it's fascinating you say that because I, um, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant to this country, and I, and I moved when I was nine to a small rural town in Arkansas and um, attended public school there. And I have to tell you that, you know, the the sort of the dialogue is is really centered a lot on on inner city schools and the difficulties of big cities. But I, you know, I, I went to to uh, middle school and, and high school in, in this small town. And, and uh, it, the level of underachievement um, on the part of the institutions was incredible. So that, you know, students were not challenged and they weren't supported and they weren't helped along. And, and, and it was, you know, it was a white town too. So, you know, you, you talk about minorities, there's, there's a, there's a huge, for me, more than talking about race or ethnicity, and I mean, there, there are obviously huge issues with that, um, and we've been having to like face them head on. I'm glad we are in the, in the last couple of years. But I'll tell you right now, part of the big problem with this country is that you know rural communities are just not engaged in any. There's no there's no real concern on the part of local school boards. Uh, with with the student um, education in a, in a in a sort of significant manner, and so you end up having these great divides between um, students who have received or privileged education and those who haven't. And unfortunately, there's a huge percentage of our population that has not received the privileged education because of the way our system is, is set up. You're talking about Scandinavia. They've, they've had a long tradition of inclusive educational structures, mainly public, um, to the point that, you know, even if you have a lot of money, you might not find the need to go to a private school. Because yeah, the everyone goes to the same schools. schools. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, a huge, that's a huge difference. Yep. And so and I know- me, yeah, let me just, yeah, just let me say that, for me, and, and you know, I've I've been dedicated to public uh, education since the beginning, um, because my grandmother had a, th- a third grade education, but she worked her whole life, seven days a week, so that her daughters could go to to 
not just high school, but college. And it, it represented such a huge shift in where my family and look at me now, you know, I have a doctorate um, and I'm teaching history. But to me, my grandmother is who I think about. I go back. I, I, I came to a place like Bronx Community College because I'm dedicated to helping that jump occur. If we don't, if we don't help students who are underprivileged be able to catch up, then there's always going to be this deep divide. So we ha- yes, we have to institutionally work to help them be able to come up to meet the, the intellectual potential that they really do have. Too many years they've been told that they're, they're, they're underachievers, that they're never going to get there, that they might as well just get used to it. But they, you know what impresses me every day? They don't want to believe that. And they're fighters. And, you know, we have to, we have to respond to them and, and answer their call. This concludes part one of our conversation with Jordy Getman from Bronx Community College. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. This episode was produced by Drew Albanicius and Jessica Chittum. Thanks for listening.